Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Janet Dewart Bell, a communication strategist, social justice advocate, activist, executive coach, motivational speaker, and broadcaster. She's the author of Lighting the Fires of Freedom, African-American Women in the Civil Rights Movement. Bell is also the widow of Derek Bell, former dean of the University of Oregon School of Law. She spoke at the U of O, along with Duke Law Professor Guy Uriel Charles on February 10th, 2020. The event was a collaborative effort combining the School of Law's annual Derrick Bell Lecture with the African American Workshop and Lecture Series, sponsored by the Office of the President and facilitated by the Division of Equity and Inclusion. The Derrick Bell Lecture Series honors Bell, who from 1980 to 1985 was the first African American to serve as Dean of the UL Law School. He wrote extensively about race in the United States and challenged academic institutions he served to commit to diversity, including the U of O. Thanks, Janet, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your background and who the major influences on you have been. Well, my background, I was involved in the Civil Rights Movement, of course, but I grew up as in Erie, Pennsylvania, small town America. And that's, that really shaped my life a lot. Uh, my, my mother is the biggest influence in my life. The second biggest influence was Derrick Bell. My mother was born in rural Arkansas. Her formal education ended at grade eight because the nearest high school for black students was 100 miles away in Little Rock. And she obviously became passionate about education. <laughs> and so she passed that on to her children. She was my greatest influence, not only for the passion for education, but her love of humanity and the way she felt that you had to be committed to make a difference in this life. Mm. Say a little bit more about um, how, I know for example, when you uh, decided to become active in the civil rights movement, you left university to do that. Yes, my mother was not entirely happy about <laughs> that, but she was totally supportive. And so much so that she bought me a car to use that was more expensive. It was a used car, but it was more expensive than any car she ever owned. But that's how committed she was to social change so, and to me. So, um, I think I'm already beginning to get a sense of how you might answer this next question, but um, what inspired you to write Lighting the Fires of Freedom? The stories of the women, African-American women, are not really elevated. In fact, the story about black history is something you have to really reach out to find out mm -hmm. the complexity of. It's mm -hmm. more complex than every, every February for Black History Month, they roll out these the, the sort of top ten favorites. And even with those, you don't know. So you have um, Martin Luther King, of course, and Fannie Lou Hamer, some people do or do not know about mm -hmm. her, and Rosa Parks. And what, what I've discovered is most people, if they know about Rosa Parks, they think of her as this, this uh, a tired seamstress who one day got tired and sat down on a bus and refused to get up. That was so far from reality. She was a trained activist. She was the secretary of the local NAACP. And secretary in those days during the Civil Rights Movement did not mean you were taking dictation. Mm -hmm. It meant you were investigating things like lynchings and other, other kinds of murders. She was a rape uh, anti-rape activist. She investigated those kinds of incidents too long before Me Too and, and she was such a full person and the stories of the women that I tell because of the space I'm, I, I'm able to hint at their complexity but, but even the, the stories beyond that and so I just wanted to tell the full story. I wanted to tell the full story of my mother 
she's not a, she's not one of the chapters in the books. I will get to a book about my mother, <laughs> however, because her life was um, uh, was was limited because of her educational background or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. But she managed to live a full life. She was self-taught. When you see the movie Hidden Figures and you see where they're writing all those formula on the on the blackboard, my mother could do that in her head. <laughs> and so you think about the women, particularly African-American women, whose talents were not used. My mother could have been could have been an aerospace engineer. Mm -hmm. What she really would have been, had she had the education, was an architect. Mm. Fascinating. Yes, yeah, fascinating. And so I wanted to, t I knew that there were stories like that out there, and I just wanted to share those. And I was lucky enough to be able to interview some really mm -hmm. interesting people. Uh, so will you gloss the title, Lighting the Fires of Freedom? Mm-hmm. So how, how did these women light the fires of freedom? Why, why, why did you choose that title? Because, you know, there's, there's a scene in, in Roots, I think, where Odetta blew on when she's starting a fire. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it's a very powerful scene. And I'm, I've met Odetta, unfortunately. She wasn't around when I was writing this, this, this book. And I've always been struck by that, by, by the fact that people could take something that simple, lighting a fire, mm -hmm. and what that did, the, and the implications of that. It's not only heat it's light, mm -hmm. it's, it's survival and what have you. And what these women did, they, they were servant leaders personified and they did not do what they did for themselves alone. I mean, they certainly had self-interest in this, mm -hmm. but they did it for the community and not just the black community, they did it for everybody. So that's, that's the story of black women's involvement in social justice movements is that it's really intersectionality mm -hmm. and it's really, it's, it's a sense of you have a cultural grounding, but that cultural grounding, it's, it's like my, my Jewish friends, the fact that they can embrace that tradition mm -hmm. means that they're able to go outside of that tradition as well and bring other people in mm -hmm. to build bridges, not walls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So why do you think the women of the civil rights movement have been underappreciated or overlooked? Well, I think it's in general, it's women have, have been underappreciated. And you see even the coverage of women today. Mm -hmm. I'm on the board of the Women's Media Center, and uh, we produce a, a, an annual document called, uh, uh, you know, Name It, Change It. And one of the things that we talk about is the disparity of coverage mm -hmm. of of women, and so that that's historic, unfortunately, and it's historic on uh, the undercoverage of African American men, even with the coverage of Martin Luther King. I'm not sure we know the whole story. Mm -hmm. If they had told the whole story about Martin Luther King in a way, they would have also told about how Coretta Scott King, who was actually more when they more progressive than he when they when they first met, Antioch of my, a graduate of my school, Antioch mm -hmm. University, um, how how she and he were really co-partners. And so for her to carry on that legacy, it wasn't just his legacy, it was also her legacy. And I'm glad, and I was glad to see in the last few years, people are acknowledging that even her, and her daughters are speaking out mm -hmm, more about, mm -hmm. well, this is what my mother did as well. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's going against the grain of the omission of women from history, the omission of African-Americans from history, unless, or, and trying to correct the historical record because sometimes when it's mentioned, it's distorted. Mm -hmm. So you want to bring it into a reality mm -hmm. because I think that is instructive for all of us. So how did you choose the women that you uh, decided to focus on in the book? How did you select them? I wanted to be 
representative in, in certain ways. I wanted to have some people who were relatively well known and others you may never have heard about, hmm. but who represented a, a, a group of people. They represented a lot more than that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's start with one of the women that you t focus on who's well known or among the most well known, which is Merle Evers. Yes. Tell us about her. What should we know about her that we m probably don't know? Merle Evers and her husband, uh, Medgar Evers, were natives of Mississippi. Uh, Merle Evers married, I, I always called them formally Mrs. Evers, I never call her Merle, but for purposes of distinguishing them, I'll say mm -hmm, Merle mm -hmm, and Medgar. Mm -hmm. And uh, Merle married at, uh, Medgar when she was 18 years old, and he was eventually appointed the first field secretary of the NAACP in Mississippi. That's a very dangerous job. Mm -hmm. The When he was hired, he negotiated a paid position for Murley as the office secretary. Now, I've told you about Rosa Parks. Secretaries mm -hmm. were not sitting around taking notes. They, mm -hmm. were, they were planning rallies. They were, they were investigating murders. They were, they, were doing, they were hosting visitors. They were doing all these things. Murley Evers is just one of the most courageous and beautiful people in the world. I, I say that people who saw her give the invocation at President Barack Obama's second inauguration probably had no idea what she had endured. Mm -hmm. Her husband, their, their home was firebombed in Jackson, Mississippi in, in 1962, a year before he was assassinated in their driveway, essentially in front of her and their three children. She lived in that house for over a year through the summer of 1964, when the three civil rights workers whose names we have to always lift up, James Cheney, Michael Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, were found, were missing and then later found murdered. And after that, she moved to California where she rebuilt her life. At age 31, she went back to college with three small children, three small fatherless children, working full time and then graduated from Pomona College. And to this day, she is, she's such a beautiful person. She pursued the um, justice for her husband. It took 30 years for juries to convict this guy. I don't say his name. Everybody knew who did it. It's like even if, even if you commit a crime in daylight, it's still a crime, mm -hmm. you know? And so it took 30 years to, to achieve a conviction for him and she pursued that and and she pursued it, it with love and with respect she just has always been an activist and I always say to her I said Mrs. Murray Mrs. Evers you've paid your dues you could sit back she's oh no she's looking for the next challenge <laughs> okay um, tell us about Leah Chase oh she uh, she is the proprietor of Dookie Chase Restaurant, and the reason someone said, you have a restaurant tour in there? Well, when I interviewed Mrs. Chase, she said to me, well, you're the first person who interviewed me, who wants to interview me about my civil rights activities. Everybody mm -hmm. wants to talk about my cooking because she's also called the queen of Creole cuisine, mm -hmm. and she is the model for Princess uh, Liana in The Princess and the Frog, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Tiana, excuse me, and at any rate, Mrs. Chase, the reason she's in the book is because she and her late husband were hosts of civil rights workers, the uh, workers from the, anyone, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Martin Luther King, uh, Thurgood Marshall, and others. And remember, this, this is, in the civil rights movement, 
and, and they defied all the segregation laws. Their business could have shut, been shut down at any moment. It wasn't because of the overall respect that mm -hmm. the Chase family had in that area, but it still was not easy by any, by any means. And when she died uh, last year, I believe mm -hmm. it was, the, I was really pleased to see that they highlighted her civil rights activities because that was so important to her. But talk about someone with true grit. She died, I think, at like 95, mm -hmm. something like that. And she, uh, when her restaurant was almost destroyed during Hurricane Katrina, she lived in a FEMA trailer while they rebuilt her restaurant, but she refused to leave that area because that's an area that she wanted to lift up. She always wanted to give the same kind of elegance and service to the black community as she had found as she had been working earlier in white restaurants. She said, I want that to share that. And she was also a person, when I talk about servant leadership, when other people had problems or had difficulties, she reached out to help them. She was just, just wonderful. So uh, she she lived to be um, a very uh, advanced age, as you said. Um, a couple of the women that you interviewed have passed away in the yes. interim, yes. but m most of them are still going strong. They and are. I think one of the oldest uh, is Gloria Richardson. Yes, in, so, in her mid nineties. So tell us about her. I found her story really fascinating. Well, Gloria Richardson became involved in the civil rights movement in. Uh, in Maryland, Cambridge, Maryland, because her daughter was involved. Her, her, her daughter and, and her daughter was a teenager with her teenage friends. And Gloria Richardson wanted to help her daughter. And the fact is, she was so militant then, her daughter asked her not to be on the line because <laughs> they, would, they would have these uh, picket lines. And Gloria Richardson, who has a, has a wicked sense of humor sometimes, would trip white people as they're walking by. And her daughter said, Mom, you can't do that. We are nonviolent. And so that shows you the kind of um, energy and, <laughs> and also a little, little, bit, little bit of a tease that, that she is. But she, I, I, I interviewed her, and we were watching um, television, and we were watching one of the many, unfortunately, uh, murders of young black people in this country and she was still as uh, articulate and as angry as as she as she had been mm -hmm. and she but it, but and even now she has facebook where she's always she talks about mm. current issues mm. she's very she's very current mm. she, and she's just a wonderful person at one point she was so militant because she personally does not believe in nonviolence yeah, yeah. but she believes in nonviolence as a tactic and mm -hmm. she also knows that if you are not nonviolent particularly if you're black in this country you will be killed i mean can you imagine a couple of weeks ago we had there were armed people walking through the state capitol in Kentucky, armed white men. Can you imagine had that been young black men doing that? What, what the scenario would have been. So she adopted nonviolence as a tactic. In fact, she was so militant with her talk that uh, she was called the Lady General of Civil Rights. <laughs> and she, she uh, wears that title very proudly to this day. So the, the last one I'm asking you to talk about, not. Um, because she's any more worthy than any of the others, but it's because I think, think her case is really an interesting one, and, and she's a name I think most people do not know, okay. is Gay Mc, 
McDougal. So tell yes. us about her. Well, thank you, because those, that, so that was the other part of the book for people who are not as well known. Gay McDougal was the first African-American student at an all-girls college outside of Atlanta, Agnes Scott College. For two years, she was the only black student. Can you imagine that? And after two years, she said, I got to go. So she transferred to Bennington College. At where she got her undergraduate degree. She later went to Yale Law School, but she became not only a civil rights activist, but a human rights adv uh, activist and advocate and, and leader. I have to stress that she led the anti-apartheid protests in Washington, D.C., and most people do not know that. She was so influential, and she also was there for the first election and overseeing, helping oversee the first election of uh, the president of, the, of free South Africa, the great Nelson Mandela. Mm -hmm. When he voted for the first time, there is this very slight woman next to him at the ballot box. And that woman is Gay McDougal. And that photograph is in your book. It and is in really my <laughs> book. The photographs of all the women yes. in the book, but during the time of their civil rights involvement, mm -hmm. and then later pictures, so that you can see how they, how how they fared, you know. Mm -hmm. And what I say, people are always amazed. They said, "My goodness!" Particularly, there are other people that we haven't don't have a chance to talk about. And they say, "Well, how do they look so great in that?" And I and I <laughs> they flip, all look great. They do. It's true. And my flippant response is, "Oh, that's what a lifetime of social justice social activism will sure. get you." <laughs> <laughs> were there any surprises you encountered while you were interviewing them? I think, with the exception of people who really were progress, uh, I think it was the gentleness mm. of them. I mean, I don't know why I should have been surprised, mm -hmm. but I was. Someone asked me about, what about empathy? I said, oh, they had that. Mm -hmm. There was no question about, about that. So, but it was, it's the... It's the gentleness, considering that many of these women have had guns pointed at their mm -hmm, head mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and things that we can't imagine and have seen things that we would not have experienced and thank goodness did not, ex did not have to experience. But they bore the burdens of the struggle and that gentleness and to, and to still be hopeful. You know, uh, Brian Stevenson, the great Brian Stevenson, who now people are hearing about because of the film, mm -hmm. Just Mercy, mm -hmm. um, Brian says that hopelessness mm -hmm. is the enemy of social justice. And these women embody hope. Mm. And they, and really, they shine a light on what it is we should be when we're talking about becoming our best selves. Mm. So the chapters are all spoken in the first person by each of your subjects. Yes. And you chose to omit the questions that you asked them. So why did you choose that, make that decision? Well, the, I had asked them similar questions, but not the same questions. Mm -hmm. And I thought that there, I have an introduction to each chapter, mm -hmm. as you know, mm -hmm. but I did, I wanted to get through the introduction, get the back, get the facts out of the way to really get to their voices. Mm -hmm. And I think their voices really tell the story that they can tell their own story better than I can. So my challenge was to uh, take what in some cases were a lot of hours of interviews, to condense those down and to maintain the essence of what they said and to really preserve some of the very rich quotes that they had. Mm -hmm. And during the editing process with my, with my editor, there are some things that I had to explain to my editor <laughs> because uh, Gloria Richardson 
for instance, talked about those sedity black people. And my editors struck that out. I said, and then I said, no, you have to keep that in. It's in the book. And then she said, well, then you have to put a footnote. So I had to explain. But I thought in context, people could understand what sedity meant. But there were things like, there were phrases like that. And, and when and Mrs. Chase talks about, you know, sometimes you, when you make a decision, you just have to bam it down. You just have to bam it down. <laughs> and that, that kind of language, and, when, and, when I, and I showed everybody, because this is not a gotcha book. This is a mm -hmm. love letter. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love everybody in this book. And so I showed everybody the interview, praying that they would not ask me to change it. When I showed a couple of people, they said, oh, no, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound as articulate as I want to. I said, it sounds beautiful. And it is articulate. <laughs> it's the way people speak. And yeah. it's your special inflection. So I, I begged people to please let me keep in the way they talk. So you, so you see there are different cadences. Mm -hmm. and the way, So you get the regional flavor. Someone like uh, Mrs. Chase, who was born and raised in Louisiana. Someone like Mrs. Evers, who was born and raised in Mississippi, who, who's very formal. So her, her language is much more formal than, mm -hmm. than other people might, might use. So anyway, they allowed me, they trusted me enough to keep that in there. And that's a trust that I, that I honor. So, um, what are your hopes for the impact of this book for today's activists? That they will be inspired and they will not give in to despair and cynicism, and that, the, that they will remember their history. They will know that people have done things, and people, and remember, most of these people, except for Gloria Richardson, were teenagers mm -hmm. or, or young adults when they started. Mm -hmm. I, I tell people to sort of put it in a contemporary context. They're about the same age of those brave children in Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, you know, in Parkland, Florida. These are children who are out there showing the way, leading us toward a better future. So what I want, and I love speaking to, well, intergenerational offices, uh, audiences, but particularly the young people because they get excited about it and they, and they know that, there's, that there is hope, and that, but they also know that they have a responsibility. Freedom is not free. Mm -hmm. People paid for our right to vote. People paid for that and, it, and it's now we're passing it on to you to carry on. But we're not leaving you alone, we're bringing you with us. So let's talk a little bit about Derek Bell. Oh, I love that. Okay, so how did you meet him? I met him because I was the editor for State of Black America, published by the National Urban League, and I called him to uh, ask, ask him to contribute a chapter in uh, the book that it was, it was close to being finished, and I realized I didn't have a chapter on the law and social justice. And, I, and frankly, I called a couple of people I know, and they said, Oh, what, call Derek Bell. He's the person who knows this best. Uh, this was 1990, the fall of 1990. What I didn't know, and to my everlasting shame, one, I didn't know who Derek Bell was. Oh, wow. Number two, I didn't know that his wife had just died. Now, there's some people who question that, but both Derek and I have written about that, and that is a true story. And so when I called him and I asked him if I could write a if, if he could contribute a chapter to my book, in those days you could call the operator and they'd put you through. And so he answered the phone himself, not at his office. I called him at home. I'm a New Yorker. What can I say? <laughs> and uh, so I said, uh, Professor Bell, this is Janet Dewart from the National Urban League, blah, blah, blah. And he, I ramble on. I need you to... And there's this pause, and he says, 
I'd like to help you, but you, you know, my wife just died. And I went, oh I said, God. sir, I said, please forgive me. <laughs> I did not know that. I said, please forgive me. And there's this other pause. And Derek Bell said, of course you didn't know. Are you all right? <laughs> I fell in love with him from that <laughs> second and I never looked back. So that's a wonderful story. <laughs> so tell us, uh, just to, sh to uh, another example of this character trait that you've just described, tell us how he worked to increase diversity in the academy. He really worked with faculty, but he, he always lifted up the students. He said he would not have been at Harvard but for the students, and that's true. When he was, when he was hired by Harvard, students came with the dean. He was, the, he was teaching in California, and they came to interview him for that position because they knew that if you're going to be the first African-American tenured at Harvard Law School, you'd not only better be really, really smart, you'd better have some sense of community. And they were satisfied that Derek and his wife then, uh, Jewel Harrison Bell, had that. And so Derek has always worked, and he said that when he did the diversity protests at Harvard, mm -hmm. that he did it, he did not start, people say credit him for starting the diversity protests. He said, no, I was supporting the students. At our household, it, is, it was always students first. It was students first wherever he goes because he thinks that students have, clearly have a vested interest. He was one of those professors who, when he got tenured, actually taught his classes. Y'all know what I mean. <laughs> There's some who get tenure so they can do anything else but teach. But he loved teaching. He taught the week before he died. So we have only a couple of minutes left, okay. so this will probably be my last question. Uh, Professor Bell was dean of the University of Oregon School of Law from yes. 1980 to 1985, the first African-American dean at our law school. We currently have an African-American dean, Yes. Uh, a woman. Yes. Um, what precipitated his departure in 1985? Well, it was the fact, well, first he came here with great expectation and high, and high hopes, and he, he loved uh, Eugene. Um, but what precipitated his departure was when the faculty voted, voted for appointments, they, they hired a, a class of all white men and ignored uh, very qualified uh, women of color. And Derek just thought that was horrible. And he thought it was not only something that was bad for the university and obviously for the women in particular, but it was an insult to all of the things that he thought he was going to, that he would contribute to, to the university. And so he then, Harvard, strangely enough, had voted him back. They didn't have to, vo to vote him back. And, it's, and so he went back to Harvard, where he spent a few more years, and then he went to NYU. But, but the leaving of, NY, of uh, Oregon was, was painful. But he left with a, having started a scholarship in his name and having started a scholarship for his wife, Jewel Hairston Bell, who, was, uh, who worked in administration at the University of Oregon, was very active in the, in, in the community here in, in Eugene. So he, he left on principle and in anger, but not in despair and, and not in disdain for the, for the university. So he, he, was, he would be very pleased, one, with the Derrick Bell Lecture Series, very pleased with the appointment of an African-American woman as dean, because he wanted, he, he always said, in, he's, when he was appointed at Harvard, he said, I will be the first, but I will not be the last. And he always worked to bring other people in. 
Well, on that very inspiring note about Derek Bell, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and for sharing these uh, inspiring words about uh, the women in your incredible book, which I recommend to everybody to read. Thank you. Thanks so much for taking the time. Really my pleasure. It was a lovely, lovely conversation. I've been speaking with Janet Dewart Bell, author of Lighting the Fires of Freedom, African-American Women in the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, she's a speaker in our Derrick Bell and African-American Studies workshop and lecture series. Uh, uh, at um, The date of that lecture will is um, February 10th, 2020. Uh, thanks so much. Thanks so much for watching.